I have not done a Merit Mindset podcast episode for over a month. And now you have tuned in to the ninth episode of the Merit Mindset podcast. I apologize for my negligence. I'm Devin Merritt, your host, and I'm glad that you're with us today. I've actually had a lot of people reach out to me and be like, what the heck? Why haven't you put out another uh, Merit Mindset podcast episode? And uh, all I have really is a series of excuses. Um, it is the end of 2023. Um, and just between Thanksgiving holidays, uh, finals and grading and all that stuff, and then Christmas uh, and there's also been a lot of sickness going through my family the past little while. I just, I don't have a viable explanation other than life just got in the way. Um, I do apologize that I have been so negligent and pumping out another episode. Um, but I am grateful that people have actually been reaching out wanting to know uh, when the next Merit Mindset episode was going to come out. That was kind of cool to get some of that feedback. And I figure... <clears throat> I do apologize. You might be able to hear it in my uh, voice a little bit. I still have a little bit of congestion and everything like that, but I figured I had been putting it off so long that I needed to just get another episode out there. So um, again, thank you very much uh, for tuning in. Um, I'm really excited about this episode. I think it's going to be a fun one. Well, for me, it's definitely going to be a fun one uh, because it's about one of the best movies that has ever been made. Teaching psychology is the best job in the world. I have been so lucky to be able to interact with all the students that I get to interact with. Um, there really is not a better job in the world, at least in my opinion. Having said that, I get exposed to a lot of stuff that deeply disturbs me uh, in interacting and working with these students. And some of the stuff that's come up and conversations uh, before and a little bit during class is there's so many students that have never seen the movie Jaws. I'll have these conversations in class and just out of curiosity, you know, I'll say, how many of you in here have seen the movie Jaws? And only a couple hands go up. And sometimes I'm like, okay, is this, or is only a couple people raising their hands because other people just aren't participating? Uh, or is it really only this amount of people that have seen the movie Jaws. So I'll rephrase the question and then I'll say, how many of you have not seen the movie Jaws? And then all of a sudden, more than half the class raises their hand. And that just breaks my heart. My heart hurts when I see how many people have not seen such a great movie. And there's... Obviously, this is what I'm going to be talking about in this episode today. I'm going to be talking about uh, one of the best movies ever made, um, Jaws. Uh, and I, I reflect on this movie, and there's there's so many reasons why I like this movie so much. The villain, the story, the dialogue, the acting, the music. This is a bold thing to say, but I'm almost inclined, my personal opinion is that this is one of the 
most flawless movies um, that's ever been made. And it's funny to me to just even like the last couple, well, how long ago was this now? I can't even remember how long ago this was, but my middle son, Lincoln, who turns six in March, um, he, he and I were sitting at the dinner table together. He was doing some homework or drawing or watching a show or something. And I was sitting at the table eating some food and I was watching Jaws on my phone and I was not paying attention to my surroundings. Little did I know that Lincoln snuck up behind me and started watching Jaws standing over my shoulder. And there's this iconic scene in the movie um, where you finally get a pretty good look at what the shark looks like. And it's not until like over an hour into the movie, but the shark pops out of the water and if you've never seen it before, it can be a pretty startling scene. Lincoln's standing right, right behind me and he goes, whoa, when the, when the shark pops out of the water. And I turn around and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm watching your show. And I was like, you can't watch this show. It's scary. So I, I turn it off. And he's like, oh, why'd you turn it off? And I said, this is a show you can't watch. It'll scare you. And he goes, but I love it. And I was like, you haven't seen it. So how can you love it? He's like, but I just love it. It looks fun. It looks scary. So I told him like, he can't watch it. And he's like, well, I really want to watch it. What's it called? And I said, it's called Jaws. He's like, well, I want to watch Jaws. And I, I said, no. And he was pushing it for like three days, every single day, multiple times a day. Can I watch Jaws? Can I watch Jaws? And I kept telling him no, because I didn't want to freak him out or scare him or anything like that. And finally, uh, one day, um, he comes up to me and he's like, I want to watch Jaws. And I'm not going to lie. There's a part of me that's like, this would actually be really fun to watch this movie with my son, but he's too young. So I was like, okay, dude, how about this? I'm going to play you a trailer and then you can tell me if you want to watch it or not. So I show him the trailer to Jaws and it creeps him out. And he's like, I don't want to watch that. He was too scared. So I said, okay. He's like, but I really want to watch a shark movie. And I was kind of just racking my brain. Like what kind of a shark movie could I let a five-year-old watch that would not completely and totally traumatize him? And then the Meg popped into my head and I was like, okay, how about I show you a trailer to a movie called the Meg and I show him the trailer to the movie, the Meg and that freaks him out. And he's like, I don't want to watch that. And I thought I'd won. I was like, sweet. So probably not a good idea to watch a shark movie because it would scare you. Well, not 30 minutes later, Lincoln comes up to me again and he's like, I want to watch the Meg. So I, I, I talked it over with my wife. And she was like, all right, fine, let's do it. And I was like, okay, Link, excuse me. I'm like, Link, if you get scared, I'm going to turn it off. And he's like, okay, I won't. I'm, I'm good. Puts on his little, his brave socks on. And we watched the Meg and the dude totally loves it. He did, it didn't even scare him. Didn't give him bad dreams or anything like that. And as soon as we finished watching the Meg, he's like, I'm ready to watch Jaws now. And I was like, I don't know, dude. I don't think this is a good idea. He's like, no, I want to watch Jaws. So uh, I ended up caving and I let my five-year-old watch it and he absolutely loved it. He loved it. Didn't give him bad dreams. Didn't freak him out or anything like that. And we've actually watched it multiple times together now because he just can't get enough of it. 
And I was talking to a friend of mine about this where I was like, <coughs> excuse me, still recovering from the, the sickness that's been coming through um, our family. Um, but I was talking to a friend of mine about this and um, how I let my five-year-old son watch Jaws. And she's like, you know, honestly, he's probably going to take that memory with him for the rest of his life. Like my dad let me watch Jaws and he loves it. And I loved it. And it was fun that we were kind of watching these movies together. And I'm also glad because he's so young that watching it now, it'll actually appear like a shark movie. Whereas most of these people who've been uh, spoiled uh, and pampered, with CGI and all these amazing effects that movies are able to do, they won't really appreciate watching Jaws now, but I just, I f absolutely love this movie. It is one of my top 10 favorite movies. And by doing this episode, I'm hoping that one of two things will happen. Uh, first, if you are a person who has already seen Jaws, I hope that you're going to go back and watch it again because it's that good. And if you're somebody that has never seen Jaws before, I'm hoping that you're going to grow the freak up and go and watch it because it's one of the best movies that's ever been made. There's a great deal of nostalgia for me when it comes to my love and appreciation for the movie Jaws and yeah, I can't think about Jaws without thinking about how much it actually impacted my childhood uh, for better and for worse. I, I had a great childhood. Um, I loved my childhood growing up. I wasn't particularly gifted uh, or even interested in sports, never really cared to be uh, competitive in that regard. But I had an imagination that made life priceless for me. Um, I could just create worlds in my mind and just have the best time playing with any and all of my toys. I, I spent significant amounts of my childhood playing with action figures, G.I. Joes, Legos. In fact, growing up, the Merritt home was famous for what we called our Lego Museum. Now, I'm the youngest out of five siblings, and all of my siblings uh, growing up love to play with Legos. My oldest sibling is 13 years older than me, and my youngest older sibling is five years older than me. And so that meant, for me, years of siblings getting Legos just kept piling up in our house, and that only can, that, that fueled this Lego enthusiasm for me growing up. And so by the time I was, you know, eight or nine years old, I had this empire of Legos to play with. And unfortunately, my mom disbanded it and that museum no longer exists. She's just taking up too much space in their basement. And so she boxed up all the Legos and gave them to the respective siblings that the, the Legos belong to. I, st I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to forgive her for doing that because this was just like the coolest playhouse and all the neighborhood kids wanted to come over growing up to play with the Legos. But I digress. My love for Legos and toys is what fueled and fed my imagination. Um, beyond playing with Legos, um, I also loved stories, which meant I learned to love movies. 
uh, for better or for worse, I actually can't remember how old I was when I first saw Jaws. I just, it's been in my memory since before I was eight years old. Um, I'm, I was for sure less than eight years old. I'm, I'm very confident in saying that when I'd seen it. And because of that, um, sharks had an overwhelming presence with my imaginatory play. I don't know if anyone will remember these toys, but there used to be some really popular toys called Mighty Max. Uh, and these toys were designed with the idea that adventure could literally fit into the palm of your hand. They were these pocket-sized toys that had different themes and adventures that kids could play with, and it would literally fit into your pocket. The idea you could just take these adventures with you everywhere you went. And inside these little pocket-sized toy packets was a world that you could explore with tiny little action figures, one of whom was named Max, uh, that would fight the forces of evil. They, they were super cool toys. If you've never heard of Mighty Max before, you should Google it and, and see what they were all about. But one of the Mighty Max toys that I had was actually the shark head. Um, you can Google this and just look at this shark. It's actually really creepy looking. But when you open up the shark's mouth, that was when you could look inside and play with the the little adventure inside of it. And they had these little action figures inside of it that you could um, play with too. I ended up using this uh, Mighty Max shark head toy as my own shark villain in stories that I would play with uh, for my GI Joes, my Legos, and all the other toys that I had. Um, it was so cool, this, this little toy head. And I, I was able to have my own stories of Jaws basically growing up. Another toy beyond Mighty Max that I used to play with a lot was this little Fisher-Price houseboat. I took that thing with me everywhere. Uh, I'd, I'd bring my uh, G.I. Joes and this Fisher-Price houseboat into the bathtub, and I'd have, again, my own little Jaws experience. My G.I. Joes were on the boat hunting for this dangerous shark infesting the waters. So, bottom line, Jaws impacted me in the way that I play with my toys. The other sad and pathetic truth is the kinds of things it made me afraid of. Uh, and maybe I'm not the only one, but I sometimes would get scared that a shark would like bust through the bottom of the bathtub while I was in there. Or if I was taking a bubble bath, I'd have this thought that I would like brush the bubbles out of the way so I could see beneath the surface and there'd be like a shark in the tub with me or something like that. Um, again, I'm not sure if I'm the only one that has that kind of a fear, but that was definitely a fear of mine. And I know I'm definitely not alone with this one because I actually saw this meme on Facebook. Uh, a friend of mine had posted it. And this meme just made me feel seen, heard, and validated. It was this picture of a great white shark in an indoor chlorine-filled swimming pool. And obviously there's no sharks in there, but sometimes my fears took over, uh, especially when I was ever getting ready to climb out of the pool. I always had this thought that a shark was like coming for me as I was trying to climb out of the swimming pool or something like that. Um, now, being afraid of a shark in an indoor chlorine-filled pool is one thing, but in southeast Idaho, there's this lake that was once called Rigby Lake, but now it's called Jefferson County Lake. Obviously, 
no sharks in there. But when I would go swimming in there, sometimes I'd have creepy thought come into my mind about seeing the Jaws shark uh, swimming beneath the surface with its mouth wide open. It scares the tar out of me just thinking about it. Um, now, some of you might listen to these fears and be like, well, there you go. I'm not going to watch it. But I disagree because one of the other weird things about me, I actually love being scared. And I definitely know I'm not the only one that likes being scared because if being if enjoying being scared wasn't a common thing, why are horror movies so popular? People obviously love being scared. And again, my imagination was and sometimes is everything to me. Jaws fueled that imagination and gave me childhood memories that I cherish, as well as memories that scared the crap out of me. Now, this is just anecdotal justifications for why I like Jaws. My personal experience with the movie. Um, personally, it changed the way I entertained myself. It changed my fears. It gave me a love and fascination with sharks. And it, it continues to be one of my favorite movies to this day. Um, but I'm not just going to talk about my personal experiences with why Jaws is such an amazing movie. Let's uh, take some more objective examinations that demonstrate why Jaws is such an amazing movie. Before I start diving into just a few of the components that make Jaws such an amazing movie, I just want to provide a very high-level plot summary of the movie because I'm going to be referring to some of these plot lines as I explain what makes it such a classic. So bottom line, there is this small island called Amity, and it's a summer tourist town. And in order for this town to survive and thrive, it needs tourists' visits and tourist dollars, or else they're in financial ruin the rest of the next year. So after four people are killed by a massive great white shark that's laid claim to the beaches of Amity, Amity's chief of police, whose name is Chief Brody, receives the help of an oceanographer named Matt Hooper and a local fisherman named Sam Quint to go out and hunt the fish to save the city and prevent the death of any more townspeople. So what makes Jaws a classic? You often hear people talk about the classics, but what does that even mean? How do you know when a movie is a classic or when it's not? It turns out that there's a lot of different opinions on what makes a movie a classic, but there are a few variables that we can look at to determine whether or not a movie is in fact a classic. So number one is critical acclaim. Did the critics love it? As a matter of fact, the critics absolutely loved Jaws. Jaws has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I know this platform isn't always the most reliable, but I think they got it right on this account. Uh, it has a four out of five on Common Sense Media, uh, the Chicago Sun-Times, the New Yorker, New Times Magazine, New York Magazine, New York Times Magazine, and a host of other media platforms gave it overwhelmingly positive reviews. 
It won three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score. We're going to talk more about this later. And Best Sound. It received the People's Choice Awards. Um, They chose it as their favorite movie. It is frequently cited as one of the greatest movies of all time. It was ranked number 48 on American Film Institute's 100 Years Top 100 Movies. It has one of the most iconic and memorable soundtracks, one-liners, and scary moments on film. Bottom line, this movie received critical acclaim. Number two uh, is its cultural impact. And as previously stated, there there are things about this movie uh, that have withheld uh, the test of time. It's stuff that we're still talking about and, and thinking about. Uh, One of the more famous lines from the movie is after I I alluded to this scene uh, when I was talking about the, the part that my son Lincoln had seen, you finally get a good look at the shark chief Brody, the main character who's the chief of police is startled when the shark pops above the surface and shocked and horrified Brody like stumbles back into the ship and mutters one of the most famous lines in movie history where he looks over to Quint and he says, you're going to need a bigger boat. I read this article from Mental Floss that shed some light on this quote. The interesting thing about this quote is understanding all the hurdles and obstacles the filmmakers had to deal with. Making this movie was a huge pain in the neck for the filmmakers. Filming on the ocean was hard work, and they had to use a small supply boat to help the crew make the film. And those who had to use the supply boat got frustrated with the small boat that they had to work with. And so it became kind of this catchphrase to say, you're going to need a bigger boat. So the actor who plays Chief Brody used that catchphrase and improvised it into his dialogue with Quint, one of the other main characters in the movie that we're going to talk about later. But it's just funny because that, line is so popular and it was improvised it wasn't even in the script and then they kept it in there because it was used so perfectly and then you have to consider the soundtrack you know this this isn't something i was actually planning on talking about but in psychology they talk about this very famous uh demonstration called classical conditioning where if you've ever heard the story of dogs ringing to the sound of a bell uh the soundtrack of Jaws has absolutely um, demonstrated classical conditioning on human beings. Anytime anyone hums the tune to Jaws, they know exactly what it's from. As soon as somebody starts doing that, you start thinking about a shark. And it's interesting to realize that this movie was released um, Uh, June 20th, 1975, and nearly 50 years later, that soundtrack still carries its legacy into the world. Um, I did some digging into the themes and trivia surrounding the music, and here was some of the stuff that I found pretty interesting uh, about this music. So according to John Williams, the music was compiled to portray the shark as an unstoppable force of mindless and instinctive attacks. Furthermore, the buildup of the music is supposed to signal to the audience that danger is approaching. And there's actually some uh, 
speculation on what the music means. Some music scholars have proposed that the Jaws theme is supposed to mimic the shark's heartbeat or human respiration or breathing patterns. The closer the shark gets, the quicker the breathing. The more danger that it's about to hit the characters, the more intense the music gets. So just like the dog ringing to the sound of a bell, you're conditioned to think of sharks when you hear that music. There's no escaping it. And anyone familiar with the tones, it's like jumping to the sound of an explosion. You can't control it. You hear that music and you're taking to you're taken to thoughts of sharks. And it's almost completely out of your own control. One of the other things that's interesting as we consider the cultural impact of Jaws is the idea of summer blockbusters. Uh, summer blockbuster movies wasn't even a thing until Jaws came out, which is one of the reasons why Jaws is often credited as being the first summer movie. And in case anyone doesn't know what it mean, what that means, a summer blockbuster movie is simply a movie that's highly anticipated, and these movies tend to be released in May, June, July, or August. Um, and so when Jaws came out, uh, audiences were lined up around the block waiting to see this movie. And it was the first time ever in cinematic history that this happened. It totally changed the way Hollywood studios worked. Uh, so huge cultural impact there. Um, and (laughs) (coughs) sorry, I can't, I, I've, I've had this cough that's just lingering. So I apologize if I occasionally start coughing into the mic, I'll do my best to prevent that from happening. But there are several different articles and publications that reported that beach communities took a huge hit, um, because tourism declined in a dramatic way after Jaws came out. Why? People were too afraid to go into the water. Uh, so it kind of ticked off those beach communities because, uh, people watching this movie about a giant shark eating people scared the public so much. So it had this huge, uh, huge impact on them and people who watch jaws continue to have that fear of the ocean instilled in them. It's, it's very difficult to argue that jaws did not have cultural impact. Number three. So we've talked about critical acclaim. Uh, We've talked about cultural impact. Number three, timelessness. Are you afraid of the unknown? Excuse me. Let me, I I, I stumbled over the, how I said unknown. Are you afraid of the unknown? It's kind of interesting to think about. The things that oftentimes make things so terrifying is when we can't see them. There are so many people who are afraid of the ocean because there's, I mean, what haven't we explored that lives in that uh, dark abyss? There's so much unknown about what lurks beneath the surface. And it's really creepy when you think about that. Um, And it's actually quite common for people to be afraid of the ocean which is one of the things that makes Jaws so timeless. Um, Part of this fear is that primal fear inside all of us about the fear of the unknown. Uh, You know, to steal a line from Batman Begins, Carmine Falcone accurately declares that we fear what we don't understand and what we don't know we don't understand. And so there's a lot that we don't understand or know about the ocean, and that's what makes us afraid of it. 
Um, for the first hour of Jaws, you don't really get a good look at the shark. It's, it's hardly in it. Um, but you know that the shark is lurking under the surface, stalking its prey before it attacks. And knowing that just feeds that fear. It's interesting that um, the reason why you don't see the, the shark for the, like the first hour of the movie uh, that was to make the filmmakers' lives easier. Steven Spielberg wasn't necessarily trying to strategically prevent the audience from seeing the shark. The problem was, is the shark kept breaking down on set and he reached a point where he's just like, I'm sick of it. I'm not dealing with the shark. So we're just going to have the shark be off screen and doing that, um, actually served in the movie's benefit because it fed that fear of the unknown. You didn't know what the shark looked like. You didn't know what it was doing to its victims outside of eating them. And then that you, your imagination takes over and your imagination takes you down creepier paths, playing off of that fear of the unknown and enhancing that dynamic. Um, it's, it's just an interesting thing to consider. Another aspect of um, timelessness is these themes of the fear of water, fear of sharks, etc. These, it's almost ingrained in all of us. Like we're supposed to be afraid of these things. It's one of the things that keeps us alive. I've also read some analyses on the three main characters of Brody, Hooper, and Quint. Um, and just for the record, uh, Hooper is my favorite character on the movie. Um, he's played by Richard Dreyfus. He's so funny. I just, I love Hooper. He's my favorite character on the movie. And when you look at these three main characters, the three people who go on the boat to hunt the shark during the last hour of the movie, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Brody, Hooper and Quint, um, there's some themes and symbolism behind all of these characters that I think uh, makes watching the movie a little bit more interesting when you start to consider their different backgrounds. So first you have Chief Brody and a little bit of background information on him. He's from New York and he's the brand new chief of police in Amity Island. He knows nothing about small towns. He knows nothing about sharks or sailing. And to make it even worse, he's actually terrified of the water. He has no theoretical knowledge of sharks, and he definitely doesn't have any practical experience with sharks. He's just a guy doing the best that he can. And sometimes those are the kinds of people who solve the problems. You don't need to know everything to make a difference with something. You don't, know, you don't need to know how to do everything <clears throat> to have an impact on, on something. And then you have Hooper. He's the oceanographer. He's the, the lab geek. He's highly educated. He's a researcher. He has a ton of theoretical, scientific, and technological savviness that most people on this small island don't have. Uh, he spends significant amounts of time just going, going aboard vessels and researching uh, sharks. And unfortunately, his high level of expertise is often downplayed in an environment where he's surrounded by, I don't know, shall I say more humble people who are prideful in their own unique ways. Um, <laughs> if you, if you need a reminder because you've already seen the movie 
or you've uh, not seen the movie before and you end up watching it, you'll also come to learn real quickly that Hooper has the best laugh in the movie. Um, one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite characters overall His his laugh is the best. And then you get Quint and honestly, he's an extremely close second in terms of who's the, my favorite character in the movie. Quint is not educated, but he's highly experienced in working and dealing with sharks. And while most of Hooper's experience is tied to lab settings, research, and logic, Quint is the one who has all the real hands-on experiences. Quint also epitomizes um, the character of Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. <clears throat> he's obsessed with his hunt. And I think that's a very powerful narrative in and of itself. Uh, but that that's a that's an ep another episode for another day. Um, bottom line, there's something to be said about what can happen if you fixate too intensely on accomplishing your personal goals. It's it's not always a good thing to be so committed to your goals. Um, but that's another topic for another episode that maybe I'll have to address one of these days. Now, without giving any spoilers, it's interesting to see the pros and cons of each of these people's background. Again, you have Chief Brody, who's kind of the uh, noob. He's the amateur. He doesn't really know what he's doing. You have Hooper, who's the, the theorist, the educated guy, the rich guy. And then you have Quint, who's the local fisherman who just knows what he knows. Um, and each of these characters has a pro and a con. Some of them are really good at solving some problems and they're awful at solving others. Some are revered more often the as the hero in one particular situation, but then they're a hindrance in another. And I feel like that is real life. In IO psychology, for example, we spend a lot of time talking about something called the science practitioner model. And to try and articulate this as simply as possible, the problem scientists run into is they conduct all this research and they get caught up in all this theory that most people in businesses don't really care about. Or it's so theoretical that it just isn't practical at all. And if you're trying to sell the value of your theory to a bunch of people who don't care about theory, then your research is kaput. It's not going to have any kind of impact. And what good is all that knowledge and thought and theory if there's no real world value or contribution? Uh, so that's the science issue of the science practitioner model. And then on the other hand, you have people who are more interested in the practice. They aren't doing research. They aren't working in what we call the labs or anything like that. They're working in what we call the real world. But the problem with these people is a lot of times they're unwilling to consider evidence or theoretical understandings that would help them make better decisions in their practice. They often act like dogs chasing their own tails when there's research that would help them get put or pursuing the right direction. Um, a, personal, a person's personal experience uh, should not be the, the only standard that everybody else should live by. Just because something worked once doesn't mean it'll always work. But a lot of times people with their practice and experience just trust their own judgment and opinion so much that they create their own downfall. Um, so in a lot of ways, Hooper is the scientist and Quint is the practitioner. It isn't necessarily to say that like Hooper or Quint is better than the other. 
but both of these characters in a lot of ways would benefit from diving into more of the science or practice of their counterpart. And these two often are portrayed throughout the movie. This isn't a huge spoiler, but as you watch the movie and you see these characters interact with each other, they're almost in complete opposition to each other. And I love that because I feel like it, it kind of c- captures this science practitioner model issue. Um, and so then that's the issue with Quentin Hooper, but then we get to Brody and he isn't a scientist uh, or the practitioner. And sometimes I think it's absolutely wonderful to have no clue what you're doing. Uh, my first ever episode was about analysis paralysis and Brody's the guy who doesn't get caught up in all of his theory or his previous practice. He just does stuff and he gets a lot of good stuff done. And all this is to say that a lot of times solving problems isn't going to be done uh, just by the scientists or the practitioners. Rather, it's going to be done by people who are just trying to do the very best with the very little information or skill they have. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, these, so, so these are the themes that could be visited throughout history. And this is, again, one of the things that, that makes Jaws such a timeless piece in terms of an amazing movie. So reason number four why Jaws is a classic is because it was also a box office success. So this movie was made on a budget of $9 million, but it ended up making over $470 million at the box office. Do I need to say anything more? (laughs) Obviously it was a, it was a huge financial success. Um, So those are just four reasons that I'm going to give to argue um, that Jaws is a classic. And if you haven't seen it, you really need to. If you have seen it, you need to go and watch it again. The cast, the story, the music, the acting, all of it. It is just a spectacular movie. And what I wanted to do real quick is just talk about um, just a few of my favorite scenes. Hopefully that'll... Uh, spur some excitement uh, for those of you to either go and watch it again, or maybe maybe uh, tweak your curiosity to make you say, "Okay, fine, I'm going to give this movie a shot." So, uh, I think I'm going to give about. Mm, we'll see. I'm going to start with three scenes. We'll see if I want to keep going further. So, the first scene that has had a lasting impact on me. Uh, for the genius of creating a tense scene um, involves two fishermen. (coughs) (coughs) I am so sorry. That's probably the last thing you want to listen to. I'm going to, so there's two fishermen and they're trying to catch the shark in order to earn a $3,000 bounty because a person is eaten in a previous scene. And so the loved one, of that person who was eaten posts this $3,000 bounty. So these two fishermen go on the edge of this dock and they tie a chain to the edge of the dock. And at the end of the chain is this really big hook where they take an uncooked roast as bait and to help them gauge whether or not they have a bite. They also tie a tire to that chain. So if the shark bites, the tire will be pulled underwater. So they throw this big piece of meat uh, into the ocean. And a few minutes later, the tire starts uh, starts jolting 
and being pulled beneath the surface. And then the chain slack starts to give way as the shark starts pulling the bait and the chain uh, farther out into the ocean. And so the fishermen totally underestimate the size and strength of this shark because the shark effortlessly just pulls this chain hard enough and the dock completely collapses and breaks into a bunch of pieces carrying one of the fishermen out into the ocean. And so the fisherman, who's named Charlie, ends up sliding off this piece of broken dock that the shark's pulling out into the ocean. And he just starts swimming as fast as he can uh, back to the shore. But unbeknownst to him, the broken dock piece that the chain was tied to starts to turn around uh, and turn its back to the ocean and starts heading towards the shore uh, and the wood just makes this really creepy creaking sound. And then the broken dock piece just speedily starts making its way towards Charlie as he swims for the shore. The thing that's so creepy about this, again, you never see the shark here, but the music and the knowledge of the lurking danger beneath the surface speeding towards this guy as his friend stands on the broken dock, begging him to keep swimming faster before the broken piece catches up to him. It's so good. And you know the shark is underneath the broken dock piece that's heading towards Charlie. And this scene keeps me on the edge of my seat almost every time I watch it. You can't see what's underwater. You just know something's coming for him. <clears throat> so that, that honestly is one of my first favorite scenes of the movie. Um, the second scene that probably creeps me out the most, like this is probably the most nerve-wracking scene for me in the entire movie is when this unnamed character uh, in the movie dies trying to save some teenagers that are on a sailboat in the ocean. So unbeknownst to this poor soul, the shark swims up behind him and knocks his boat over. And he's in this tiny little red boat. And this red boat just completely tips upside down. And so this guy's trying to get out of the water. And he's trying to climb on top of his boat and as the audience we we kind of get this camera angle view above him <clears throat> so we can see <clears throat> sorry we can see a view above him and and you can see the ocean and you can see his feet uh under the surface um and this is like the first time you actually do get to see the shark but you only get to see it a little bit um, because the shark is right underneath the surface of the water. You see that it's gray, dark gray back and it's white belly, barely visible below the surface. And its mouth is wide open as it slowly approaches this guy trying to climb out of the water. There's just something about this scene that just scares me more than anything else. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And again, it taps into that fear of the unknown. Like our imaginations just fill in what we can't see and makes it even worse because we fill these gaps with our own worst fears. And this clouded image of the shark beneath the water also feeds off this, amb feeds off this ambiguity. It makes me feel like I don't know what the shark is going to do next or even I can't even for sure really tell what it looks like. The ocean is just a freaky place anyway. It's vast, dark. And it evokes this primal fear in so many people. You combine that with the threat of a massive unseen predator, and it really drills drills us into this fear of the unknown and the and of 
of the depths of the ocean. I just, I think the, <laughs> the visual composition of this scene uh, just makes it one of the most memorable ones for me. Water distortion, shadows, and darkness. It just creates this obscured view, which ultimately creates a very unsettling visual experience. Um, okay. So finally, I'm just going to share one more scene, but this is going to have a little bit of a uh, long-winded narrative because this... And Anyway, I'll just get to the point. Sorry. So there's one scene that is just beautifully written and acted. Uh, it's Quint, and it's famously known as Quint's monologue. It's one of the creepiest monologues that I've ever listened to. So Brody, Hooper, and Quint, it's nighttime. They've been on the boat on the ocean all day trying to catch this shark. It's, it's getting dark outside, so they're just sitting inside, eating dinner, drinking, and they're joking around about all these different scars that they have on different parts of their body. And Brody notices that Quint has one on his arm, uh, this, this scar on Quint's arm. And Brody asks him what that scar is. And Quint says that it was a, it was once a tattoo of the USS Indianapolis. Now here's where I'm just going to push pause, um, about the movie. And I'm just going to talk a little bit more about truth over fiction. So for those of you who don't know, there was in fact a United States vessel called the USS Indianapolis that experienced a horrible, horrible fate. And it was in 1945, the USS Indianapolis completed a top secret mission for the uh, first nuclear missile ever used in combat called Little Boy. And this was a the atomic bomb that was actually um, dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, now I'm trying to think Hiroshima or Hiroshima. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Anyway, um, and the USS Indianapolis was the vessel that delivered this bomb to its destination. So the USS Indianapolis completes their mission. They're heading towards the Philippines. And while they're heading for their destination, a Japanese submarine torpedoed the ship and the ship sunk within 12 minutes. Um, historians have estimated that out of a crew of, uh, I want to say it was 1,195 people, 300 people went down with the ship, and the remaining 890 were left to deal with the treacherous Pacific Ocean and all the perils it brought with it. So the main problems these survivors faith, uh, faced included um, exposure, dehydration, saltwater poisoning, and you guessed it, shark attacks. These men, they remained in the ocean for three and a half days until they were spotted in open water. And when they were finally recovered out of uh, the 890 men, only 316 survived the ocean. Uh, some believe that the, um, the loud explosions from the torpedoes, which caused vibrations in the sea, as well as the blood from the sailors who were killed and or injured, it lured hundreds of sharks uh, to the adrift sailors. Uh, and the estimates vary, but it's believed that the sharks killed 150 of these sailors, which is the most shark attacks on humans in history. And if they weren't killed directly by the sharks, um, the sharks dragged off the bodies of the sailors who died from exposure 
dehydration, suicide, or some other means. Now, according again to some articles that I've read, um, not a lot of people knew about the USS Indianapolis. It wasn't a particularly well-known historical event, uh, but this monologue that Quint talks about really helped highlight the prop, uh, popularity and knowledge of this event happening. So we get back to the to Jaws, the movie. You learn from this monologue that Quint is one of the surviving sailors on the USS Indianapolis. And Robert Shaw, the actor who geniusly plays Quint, describes his experience on the USS Indianapolis, it makes you feel so hopeless and helpless as you listen to his words. And it's kind of funny when you look at the Jaws trivia, Robert Shaw apparently wanted to be genuinely drunk when he shot this scene, but it was a complete disaster. And so Robert calls the director, Steven Spielberg, uh, super concerned about embarrassing him during his drunken performance. And so Robert asked, uh, that he'd be able to film it again. And so the next day when they filmed these lines, he delivered this masterpiece performance that is one of the most legendary scenes uh, of the show. And I think it's safe to say that the movie exaggerated the contribution of sharks towards the sailor's death for dramatic effects. But regardless, it is an extremely eerie scene as Quint compares a shark's eyes to a doll's eyes and how men would scream this high pitched scream when they're being eaten by sharks and how the worst part for him was when he was waiting for the rescue team to pull him out of the water as he was circled around by hundreds of sharks. It's, it's one of the best scenes ever and it really helps you feel the dread and fear of being in a shark's territory unprotected. All right, my friends, that wraps it up for one of my favorite movies of all time. As stated at the beginning of this episode, hopefully this has been something to motivate you to either A, give this movie a shot if you haven't seen it, or B, go and watch it again if you've already seen it. And after you watch this movie, I'm genuinely wondering, would you set up a massive projector screen at a lake, lay in a floaty of some kind in the lake, and watch Jaws while the dark water hides the creatures lurking beneath you. <laughs>